We'll go to the beginning of the 18th century. Read from a variety of forgotten poets. The Fond Lover, a ballad. A nymph of every charm possessed that native virtue gives. Within my bosom all confessed and bright idea lives. For her my trembling numbers play along the pathless deep, while sadly social with my lay the winds in concert weep. If beauty's sacred influence charms the rage of adverse fate, say why the pleasing soft alarms such cruel pangs create. Since all her thoughts by sense refined, an artful truth express. Say wherefore sense and truth are joined to give my soul distress. If when her blooming lips I press, which vernal fragrance fills, through all my veins a sweet excess and trembling motion thrills. Say whence the secret anguish grows, congenial with my joy, and why the touch where pleasure glows should vital peace destroy. When my fair and melting song awakes a vocal lay, not all your notes, ye Phoetian throng, such pleasing sounds convey. Thus wrapped all o'er with fondest love, why heaves this broken sigh? For then my blood forgets to move, I gaze, adore, and die. Accept, my charming maid, the strain which you alone inspire. To thee the dying strings complain, the quiver on my lyre. Oh, give this bleeding bosom ease, that knows no joy but thee. Teach me thy happy art to please, ordain to love like me. That was Falconer. William Falconer, like William Falconer, but that was in 1720s. Now we'll go to Shenstone, a subject I adore in Elegy number six to a lady on the language of birds. Come then, Dion, let us range the grove the science of the feathered choirs explore. Here linnets argue, larks, descant of love, and blame the gloom of solitude no more. My doubt subsides, tis no Italian song, no senseless ditty cheers the vernal tree. Ah, who that hears Dion's tuneful tongue shall doubt that music may with sense agree. And come my muse that loves the sylvan shade, evolve the mazes and the mists dispel, translate the song, convince my doubting maid, no solemn dervish can explain so well. Pensive beneath the twilight shades I sate, 
the slave of hopeless vows and cold disdain. When Philomel addressed his mournful mate, and thus I construed the mellifluent strain. Sing on, my bird, the liquid notes prolong, at every note a lover sheds his tear. Sing on, my bird, tis Damon hears thy song, nor doubt to gain applause when lovers hear. He, the sad source of our complaining, knows, a foe to Tereus and to lawless love. He mourns the story of our ancient woes. Ah, could our music his complaints remove? Yon plains are governed by a peerless maid, and see pale Cynthia mounts the vaulted sky. A train of lovers court the checkered shade, Sing on, my bird, and hear thy mate's reply. Erewhile no shepherd to these woods retired, No lover blessed the glowworm's pallid ray, But ill-starred birds that listening not admired, Or listening envied our superior lay. Cheered by the sun, the vassals of his power, let such by day unite their jarring strains, but let us chuff the calm, the silent hour, nor want fit audience while Diona reigns. Elegy 8. He describes his early love of poetry and its consequences to Mr. Graves, 1745 written after the death of Mr. Pope. Ah me, what envious magic thins my fold! What muttered spell retards their late increase? Such lessening fleeces must the swain behold, that e'er with Doric pipe essays to please. I saw my friends in evening circles meet. I took my vocal reed and tuned my lay. I heard them say my vocal reed was sweet, a fool to credit what I heard them say. Ill-fated bard that seeks his skill to show and courts the judgment of a friendly ear, not the poor veteran that permits his foe to guide his doubtful step has more to fear. Nor could my grave's mistake the critic's laws, till pious friendship marked the pleasing way. Welcome such error, ever blessed the cause, even though it led me boundless leagues astray. Couldst thou reprove me when I nurse the flame on listening cheerwells? Ozer banks reclined, will foe to fortune, unseduced by fame. I soothe the bias of a careless mind. Use gentle kindred, health and love were met. What though in Alma's garden arms I played? How shall the muse those vacant hours forget? Or deem that bliss by solid cares repaid? Thou knowest how transport thrills the tender breast where love and fancy fix their opening reign. 
How nature shines in livelier colors dressed to bless their union and to grace their train. So first when Phoebus met the Cyprian queen and favored Rhodas beheld their passion crowned. Unusual flowers enrich the painted green and swift spontaneous roses blushed around. Now sadly lorn from Twitnam's widowed bower, the drooping muses take their casual way. And where they stop, a flood of tears they pour, and where they weep, no more the fields are gay. Where is the dappled pink, the sprightly rose, the cowslip's golden cup, no more I see. Dark and discolored every flower that blows to form the garland, elegy for thee. Enough of tears has wept the virtuous dead. How might we now the pious rage control? Hushed be my grief, ere every smile be fled, ere the deep swelling sigh subvert the soul. If near some trophy spring a stripling bay, pleased we behold the graceful umbrage rise. But soon too deep it works its baneful way, and low on earth the prostrate ruin lies. <clears throat> to a lady of quality fitting up her library, 1738, who was, according to Johnson, Lady Luxborough. Ah, what a science, what is art, or what the pleasure these impart, ye trophies which the learned pursue, through endless fruitless toils, adieu. What can the tedious tomes bestow? to soothe the miseries they show. What like the bliss for him decreed, who tends his flock and tunes his reed? Say, wretched fancy thus refined, from all that glads the simplest hind, how rare that object which supplies a charm for two discerning eyes. The polished bard of genius vain endures a deeper sense of pain, as each invading blast devours the richest fruits, the fairest flowers. Sages, with irksome waste of time, the steep ascent of knowledge climb, then from the towering heights they scale, behold contentment range the veil. Yet why, Asteria, tell us why we scorn the crowd when you are nigh? Why then does reason seem to so fair when learning then deserves our care? Who can unpleased your shelves behold? Will you so fair a proof unfold? What force the brightest genius draws from polished wisdom's written laws? Where are our humbler tenets flow it? What strange perfection bids us own, that bliss with toilsome science dwells, and happiest he who most excels. Upon a visit to the same in winter, 1748. 
On fair Asteria's blissful plains, wherever blooming fancy reigns, how pleased we pass the winter's day and charm the dullard spleen away. No linnet from the leafless bow pours forth her note melodious now, but all admire Asteria's tongue, nor wish the linnet's vernal song. No flowers emit their transient rays, yet sure Asteria's wit displays more various tints, more glowing lines, and with perennial beauty shines. The rifled groves and fettered streams, but ill befriend a poet's dreams. Asteria's presence wakes the lyre and well supplies poetic fire. The fields have lost their lovely dye, no cheerful azure decks the sky, yet still we bless the lowering day. Asteria smiles and all is gay. Hence let the muse no more perfume to blame the winter's dreary gloom. Accuse his loitering hours no more, but ah, their envious haste deplore. For soon from wit and friendship's reign, the social hearth, the sprightly vein, I go to meet the coming year on savage plains and deserts drear. I go to feed on pleasures flown, nor find the spring my loss atone. But mid the flowery sweets of May, with pride recall this winter's day. Love and Music, written at Oxford when young, shall love alone forever claim a universal right to fame and undisputed sway, or has not music equal charms to fill the breast with strange alarms and make the world obey? The Thracian bard, as poets tell, could mitigate the powers of hell. Even Pluto's nicer ear, his arts no more than loves, we find to deities or men confined, drew brutes and crowds to hear. Whatever favorite passion reigned, the poet still his right maintained, or all that ranged the plain. The fiercer tyrants could assuage, or sire the timorous into rage, whene'er he changed the strain. In milder lays the bard began, soft notes through every finger ran, and echoing charmed the place. See? fawning lions gaze around, and taught to quit their savage sound, assume a gentler grace. When Simon viewed the fair one's charms, her ruby lips and snowy arms, and told her beauty's o'er, when love reformed his awkward tone, and made each clownish gesture known, it showed but equal power. The bard now tries a sprightlier sound, and all the feathered race around perceive the varied strains. The soaring lark the note pursues, the timorous dove around him coos, and Philomel complains. 
an equal power of love I've seen, incite the deer to scour the green and chase his barking foe. Sometimes his love with greater might to challenge, nay, sometimes to fight, provoked the enamored bow. When Sylvia treads the smiling plain, how glows the heart of every swain by pleasing tumults tossed. When Handel's solemn accents roll, each breast is fired, each raptured soul in sweet confusion lost. If she her melting glances dart, or he his dying airs impart, our spirits sink away. Enough, enough, dear nymph, give o'er, and thou, great artist, urge no more. They on thy unresisted sway. Thus love or sound affects the mind, but when their various powers are joined, fly, daring mortal, fly. For when Selenda's charms appear, and I her tuneful accents hear, I burn, I faint, I die. And lastly, from Shenstone, Disappointment. Ye shepherds, give ear to my lay, and take no more heed of my sheep. They have nothing to do but to stray. I have nothing to do but to weep. Yet do not my folly reprove. She was fair, and my passion begun. She smiled, and I could not but love. She is faithless, and I am undone. Perhaps I was void of all thought. Perhaps it was plain to foresee that a nymph so complete would be sought by a swain more engaging than me. A love every hope can inspire. It banishes wisdom the while, and the lip of the nymph we admire seems forever adorned with a smile. She is faithless, and I am undone. Ye that witness the woes I endure, let reason instruct you to shun what it cannot instruct you to cure. Beware how you loiter in vain amid nymphs of a higher degree. It is not for me to explain how fair and how fickle they be. Alas, from the day that we met, what hope of an end to my woes when I cannot endure to forget the glance that undid my repose. Yet time may diminish the pain, the flower and the shrub and the tree, which I reared for her pleasure in vain, and time may have comfort for me. The sweets of a juice-sprinkled rose, the sound of a murmuring stream, the peace which from solitude flows, henceforth shall be Cory Dawn's theme. High transports are shown to the flight, to the sight, but we are not to find them our own. Fate never bestowed such delight as I with my Phyllis had known. O ye woods, spread your branches apace. To your deepest recesses I fly. I would hide with the beasts of the chase. I would vanish from every eye. Yet my reed shall resound through the grove with the same sad complaint it begun. How she smiled and I could not but love was faithless and I am undone.
Mallet wrote these three little ditties in impromptu on a lady who had passed some time in playing with a very young child. Why on this least of little misses did Celia waste so many kisses? Quoth love, who stood behind and smiled. She kissed the father in the child. Epigram on seeing two persons pass by in very different equipages. Those are like carriages. In modern as in ancient days, see what the muses have to brag on. The player in his own post-chase, the poet in a carrier's wagon. Epigram on a certain lord's passion for a singer. Nerina's angel voice delights, Nerina's devil face affrights. How whimsical her Strephon's fate, condemned at once to like and hate. But be she cruel, be she kind, love strike her dumb or make him blind. Hughes was a poet I need to explore more. Beauty and music, ye swains whom radiant beauty moves, or music's art with sounds divine, think how the rapturous charm improves, where two such gifts celestial join. Where Cupid's bow and Phoebus' lyre in the same powerful hand are found, where lovely eyes and flame desire, while trembling notes are taught to wound. Inquire not whose, the matches fair, that can this double death bestow, if young Harmonia's strains you hear, review her eyes, you too will know. We'll continue with uh, the 18th century and to honor Canadian Thanksgivings, we'll read the satire upon Philip Nye's Thanksgiving beard. A beard is but the vizard of a face that nature orders for no other place. The fringe and tassel of a countenance that hides his person from another man's, and like the Roman habits of their youth, is never worn until his perfect growth. A privilege no other creature has to wear a natural mask upon his face that shifts its likeness every day he wears to sit some other person's characters and by its own mythology implies that men were born to live in some disguise. This satisfied a reverend man that cleared his disagreeing conscience by his beard. He had been preferred in the army when the church was taken with a why not in the lurch when primate, metropolitan, and prelates 
were turned to officers of horse and zealots, from whom he held the most pluralities of contributions, donatives, and salaries, was held the chiefest of those spiritual trumpets that founded charges to their fiercest combats, but in the desperate of defeats had never blown as opportune retreats until the Synod ordered his departure to London from his caterwauling quarter, to fit among them as he had been chosen and pass or null things at his own disposing, could clap up souls in limbo with a vote and for their fees discharge and let them out, which made some grandees bribe him with the place of holding forth upon Thanksgiving days. Whither the members two and three abreast marched to take of the spoils of all, the fir fierced, but by the way repeated the ohones of his wild Irish and chromatic tones, his frequent and pathetic hums and haws, he practiced only to animate the cause with which the sifters were so prepossessed. They could remember nothing of the rest. He thought upon it and resolved to put his beard into as wonderful a cut and for the further service of the women to abate the rigidness of his opinion. And but a day before he had been to find the ablest virtuoso of the kind with whom he long and seriously conferred on all intrigues that might concern his beard, by whose advice he sate for a design, in little drawn exactly to a line, that if the creature chanced to have occasion to undergo a thorough reformation, it might be borne conveniently about, and by the meanest artist copied out. This done, he sent a journeyman secretary he had brought up to retrieve and fetch and carry, to find out one that had the greatest practice to prune and bleach the beards of all fanatics and set their most confused disorders right, not by new design, but newer light, who used to shave the grandees of their sticklers and crop the worthies of their conventiclers, to whom he showed his new invented draught and told him how twas to be copied out. Quoth he, "'Tis but a false and counterfeit and scandalous device of human wit. It's absolutely forbidden in the scripture to make of any carnal thing the picture." Quoth the other saint, "'You must leave that to us to agree what's lawful or what's scandalous. For till it is determined by our vote, tis either lawful, scandalous, or not, which, since we have not yet agreed upon, is left indifferent to avoid our own. Quoth he, my conscience never shall agree to do it till I know what tis to be. For though I use it in a lawful time, what if it after should be made a crime? Tis true we fought for liberty of conscience, against human constitutions in our own sense, 
which I am resolved perpetually to avow and make it lawful whatsoever we do. Then do your office with your greatest skill, and let the event befall us how it will. This said the nice barbarian, took his tools, to prune the zealot's tenets and his jowls. Talked on as pertinently as he snipped, a hundred times for every hair he clipped, till the beard at length began to appear and reassume its antique character, grew more and more itself, that art might strive and stand in competition with the life. Where some have doubted if it were made of snips of fables, glued and fitted to his lips, and set in such an artificial frame, as if it had been wrought in philograin, more subtly filled and polished than the gin that Vulcan caught himself a cuckold in, that latches that spins the threads of fate could not have drawn it out more delicate. But being deigned and drawn so regular to a scrupulous punctilo of a hair, who could imagine that it should be portal to selfish, inward, unconforming mortal? And yet it was, and did abominate, the least compliance in the church or state, and from itself did equally dissent, as from religion and the government. And Johnson's note, I find among Butler's manuscripts several little sketches upon the same subject, but none worth printing except the following one may be thought passable by way of note. This reverend brother like a goat did wear a tail upon his throat, the fringe and tassel of a face 